0: Hello, welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we came to a close on our study through the book of James. The writer, James himself, challenged us to look at our own walk with Christ to see if we are truly living as we are called to, or if we are failing to meet the standards that have been laid before us. This week, we begin a new study in 1 Peter. Pastor Chris will be starting in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and we will be laying down the foundation for our study through this book. Now let's go ahead and dive into this week's study.
1: Turn in or turn on your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. There's no introduction because we have a lot to cover and a little bit of time, and so we are going to start flying. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to take verses 1 and 2. So it starts off with the word or the name Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure." So as we enter into a new book, let's look at our author, and he is Peter. His Hebrew name is, anybody know? Simon. Simon, right? Saul was Paul. Uh, Yeah, Peter. Peter's uh, Hebrew name is Simon, and then Jesus gave him a new name, Peter, or Petros, which means stone or rock. And Peter was a guy who was a main character in the scripture. In the New Testament, in Christianity, he's a very important figure, so much so that the Catholic Church named him the first pope, right? He's a very important figure. In fact, Peter's name is mentioned more times in the New Testament than any other name outside of one, the name of Jesus That's how important and how central a figure Peter is to Scripture. And we see Peter uh, was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that was his ministry. That was his calling. That was his role. An apostle is one who is sent out. And Paul gives us the definition or the criteria, the qualifications of an apostle. It is one who meets Christ in the flesh, has seen the resurrected Lord, and has been specifically commissioned out by Christ as an apostle. And Peter hits all three boxes. The apostles were essential to the church. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone but the household of God was built as the the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, Jesus put the household of God together, but it was the apostles' blood, sweat, and tears that laid the foundation by which you and I can be spiritual stones in which God's household is built on earth. They had a very unique ministry as God oftentimes inspired them to write letters and write books. We know them as Holy Scripture. The apostles had another incredible ministry. They were equipped with extreme power from on high. They had many signs and wonders and miracles. They would raise people from the dead. They would heal the sick instantly. They would do things that were miraculous and supernatural. And many people say, well, why? One main reason is because God had to validate their message. If you have a person who comes and says, hey, I have a a new religion for you, right? And you say, no, I'm good. I already have my religion. Just like the Greeks had their religion and the Jews and, and the Romans. We already have that. We're good. But then they say, No, my message is true. And then you see someone raise someone from the dead, you, you see them heal a person instantly, it validates what they're saying is true. Or at least they have some kind of supernatural unction or power with them. And so the apostles would do that to validate their message. And their message was to go out and make disciples, their message was, Jesus saves. So the apostles would go to a new territory, a new land where the name of Jesus had never been preached. And they would preach, they would would evangelize, they would save, and then they would move on to the next place. They weren't called to be pastor teachers. They were called to be evangelists, to, to disciple leaders, and then to move on to the next territory. So the apostles had a very important role. And Peter was the head of the pack. He was the alpha. He was the leader of them. There are four times in the New Testament where it lists the 12 apostles. In Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, Acts 1. Guess who's at the top of the list for brownie points in heaven in every single list? Guess who's the first one mentioned in every time? Peter, Peter, right? Brownie points in heaven for everyone. Peter was mentioned first. It's because Peter was the leader. It was Peter in Acts chapter 1 who led the prayer group of the 120 people in the upper room. It's Peter in Acts chapter 1 that says, we need to replace Judas who killed himself with a new apostle and they cast lots for Matthias. It was Peter who preached at the day of Pentecost there in Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 souls were saved. It was Peter in Acts 3 who preached at the temple there on Solomon's porch and people believed on God. It was Peter in Acts chapter 4 who was beaten and imprisoned and commanded to not preach the name of Jesus. And he says, I would rather honor God than honor man. It was Peter who saw through the lies of Ananias and Sapphira as they laid their treasures at Peter's feet and they were you know, slayed in the spirit, if you will. It was Peter in Acts chapter 9 who went to Joppa and Lydda and evangelized the whole place. And then it was the big one where Peter was commissioned by the Holy Spirit to go to Cornelius, a Roman soldier, a Gentile, which means a non-Jew, and preach the gospel. And while he was preaching, what does Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 say? The Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and their household, and they began speaking in tongues and were baptized. And then Peter takes it back in Acts chapter 15, the first pastor's conference on record, and he says, I found something incredible. God is not a favor of persons. He saved the Gentiles too. And it was Peter who gave the apostle Paul the right hand of fellowship, meaning if I accept him, you accept him. And it was from then on, Paul was accepted by the brethren. You see, Peter was the man, especially at the inception of Christianity he was the guy. And so I asked myself, why did God use Peter? Why didn't he use Matthew in a certain way? Why didn't he use any of the other apostles or any other people in a certain way? And I came up with two reasons. One, Peter is a natural-born leader. And secondly, Peter loved Jesus with an with just a passion. You can see in scripture how much Peter loved his Lord. But Peter was a natural born leader in two ways. He spoke up, number one, and he showed up. He talked the talk and he walked the walk. You see, there are oftentimes in the the gospels where it talks about the disciples murmuring with one another, asking questions to one another, wondering what in the world Jesus is saying. And it was Peter that always said, okay, I'm going to speak up for the group because he's a natural born leader. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus gives a sermon, and he says, it's not what a man puts in his mouth that defiles him, because the Jews taught, hey, if you eat a pork sandwich, you're done, right? It's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you, it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. Well, the disciples had no idea what in the world Jesus was talking about, and it was Peter who says, Mr. Christ, what are you saying? What are you even talking about? What does that mean? You see, leaders naturally ask questions because they need as much information as they can get to move forward. And Peter was a natural born leader. It was Peter in Matthew 18 when, um, I believe it's Matthew 18. Let me think now. It is. When he says, uh, Lord, how many times if my brother sins against me, shall I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times, seven times. But Peter spoke up. When he saw the rich young ruler walk away in Matthew chapter 19, and for he was sorrowful because he had many possessions, Peter spoke up and says, Lord, we've left everything to follow after you. What are we going to get out of this? Straightforward, straight to the point, blunt question, because leaders need to know, am I wasting my time going down this path? Can my efforts and my energies and and my utilities and my faculties be used in a different way or not? So Jesus says, hey, you're going to be okay. And then Peter continues down the road. But Peter speaks up over and over and over again. When the fig tree withered, Lord, what is that about? In John chapter 21, hey, you just told me I'm going to be crucified. What about these other guys? He's constantly speaking up because God called or God fashioned him as a natural born leader. So he spoke up and number two, he showed up. Who was the one that stepped out of the boat to walk on water? It wasn't John, right? Loving John was in the background like that doesn't look too safe. The temperature's off. The the waves are coming in, right? Right. There, he seems like a little bit of a worry worrywart. It was John who kind of peeked into the cave and didn't want to go in when, uh, when Jesus uh, you know, resurrected. And it was Peter who just ran right up in there because that's who the man was. It was Peter who pulls a sword out and says, I'm about to lop off every one of your heads if you come and try to arrest Jesus. He was a man that just showed up. He did what he had to do. He practiced what he preached. And so God uh, fashioned him as a natural leader, therefore, as the leader of the pack. Secondly, he loved Jesus. When Jesus told the guys, I am going to be betrayed, I am going to be killed, and on the third day, I will rise again. Peter pulls the Lord aside. And the scripture says, and Peter rebuked Jesus. Imagine a finite being rebuking the infinite God, but that's Peter. He rebuked him. And it wasn't because you know he understood theology and he was trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross and being this sacrificial uh, atonement for our sin. He didn't get it. What he understood was, I love you with my whole heart, and you're telling me you're going to be betrayed and died. That cannot happen. If you really know the future, then we have to do something about it. But that was Peter, right? He wanted to defend the Lord in the Garden of the Gethsemane. When he uh, sinned and he denied Jesus out of flesh and impulse, he was heartbroken. The scripture says he wept bitterly. He was devastated. And when John says in John 21 that, hey, that's Jesus out there on on the beach telling us to cast our net on the other side, what did Peter do? He didn't row, row, row his boat back in, right? What did Peter do? He jumped head first. I'm going to be the first one there because I have to see him. I have to be with him. So God used Peter in a very special way because he was a natural born leader. He spoke up when he needed to, and he showed up. And then secondly, he loved Jesus. And those really are the components for God to use anyone. If we speak God's word, if we speak truth, if we stand up for what's right, if we're not bashful or or you know uh, don't want to upset people, but we're blunt and straightforward and love and we practice what we preach and we love Jesus, God can use you in an incredible way. So God used Peter in a very very special way. So Peter then, as the apostle, as the apostle of the apostles, writes his letter to this audience at. Uh, Verse 1b, to those who reside as aliens, now not E.T., we're not talking E.T. here, Independence Day. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the word aliens just means sojourner. It means a pilgrim. It just means someone who does not belong. So in our country, you know, you go and you get a green card, and I don't know if they still have it on there today, but it used to say resident alien, you know, and it's because this person lives here, but they don't belong here. And so Peter is writing to a group of people who this world is not their home, and he says scattered throughout. The word scattered is the Greek word dysphoria. We get dispersion. It just means someone who is, who is removed from their homeland. And so these people were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are five cities and four Roman provinces in what's present day. Anyone want to guess the country? What country do all these providence, provinces reside in today? Turkey. Turkey. It's modern day Turkey. So these people were originally from Rome. And they left Rome, and they fled to modern-day Turkey, to these uh, five cities, four Roman provinces. Why? It was July 19th, 64 AD, and that was when Rome was on fire. Now, Rome had very narrow streets. Many uh, of the buildings were made out of wood, or their scaffolding was wood. It was a densely populated area where they lived on top of each other, and a fire broke out. And for three days and three nights, the fire just ravaged Rome. One uh, historian says, as the fires began to be put out, new fires started, which started piquing people's interest. Why? Why is this happening? Within the span of a week, the inhabitants of Rome lost their homes, they lost their businesses, they lost their possessions, they lost their idols in which they prayed to, and they even lost their temples of worship. Places like Jupiter, Statar, the the great shrine, um, the place of Vestas, all these places where they worshiped their gods was all burnt to the ground. Imagine within one week, you have lost everything, and that was the Roman people who lived in Rome. They lost absolutely everything. Now, rumors started swirling around that their king, their curios, their lord, Caesar Nero was the one behind it all. One historian says Caesar Nero watched the flames and he was enchanted by them. He was romanticized as he stood back and watched his city burn to the ground. And most people believe Caesar Nero was the one who lit his own city on fire so that he can rebuild it in his own image and his own likeness. So when a group of people like the most populous city in the world, the most powerful city in the world, hear their leader burned and destroyed everything they own, that's probably not good, right, for civil unrest. The Romans liked two things, peace and taxes, and both of those were jeopardized in Rome. So like any good politician who's under the threat, right, of of, uh, a populace that doesn't like them, you want to shift the blame, right? Every politician since the beginning of time, if it's not me, let me get the heat and put it on someone else. So Caesar Nero did that. He needed a minority group who was already not liked by the Roman people. So he chose a minority group called the Christian. Now, the Romans didn't like the Christians primarily for four reasons. Number one, they thought they were really strange and weird. They were a group of people who would hug and kiss each other, tell them, uh, the other person, I love you, and they did this really weird act of cannibalism where they would eat a man's flesh and drink a man's blood, and the Romans thought, these people are creepy. They're, they're weird, and we just cannot get with those kind of people. So the Romans already thought, hey, we're not feeling these guys. Secondly, the Romans associated Christianity as a sect of Judaism, and the Romans hated the Jews. It was 15 years earlier, Caesar Claudius ex- exiled, kicked out, expelled all the Jews out of Rome. And so they were not, the Jews were a hated people because they were constantly causing problems for the empire. And so the Romans hated the Jews, and these Christians are a spring or a shoot of the Jewish sect. So we don't want anything to do with them. Thirdly, a lot of Roman prominent women were becoming Christian, they were forsaking Jupiter and Julia and all, all Diana and all these gods, gods and goddesses, and they were falling in love with Jesus. And what happened was they were starting to usurp the authority of their husbands, and in Roman culture, that didn't happen. It was a very machismo, masculine, you know, we're going to rule with an iron fist, and when you have your women saying, we're not going to follow our husband's lead, we're going to do our own thing, many, many Roman men began to despise Christians. And then thirdly, or lastly, when you have a group who will not bow down to Caesar, will not worship your gods, and now all your gods are burned, and all your temples are burned, they're public enemy number one, or at least suspicion that, hey, maybe these people did it. So Caesar turns his wrath and turns the people's wrath on this group, the scapegoats called the Christians, and it was hell on earth for for our brothers and sisters. Uh, Nero took animal skins And he sewed them onto Christians, and then he would throw them into the Colosseums and stadiums with hungry bears, tigers, and lions, and would watch them being eaten up. And they would chant out, where is your good shepherd? He would uh, dip Christians in hot oil, impale them, and then light them on fire as candlesticks as torches in his garden and throughout Rome, and he was known as a person who would say, light of the world you are, light of the world you are. He would lynch them and keep them uh, hanging from you know, a rafter for days on end to let everybody know we are going after these people. And so there was extreme persecution, and the church had to run. They had to get out or else they would not have existed. So they fled from Rome. They go all the way down to Turkey. Now, what's the theme of First Peter? The theme of First Peter, the thesis statement of First Peter is this, how to overcome life's trials in a world that is not your home. And it's because he's writing to a group of people who are going through trials, who are pilgrims and sojourners on earth. So the whole point of 1 Peter is, to, how, is the, to answer the question, how can Christians overcome life's trials in a world system that is not our home? How can we navigate in a world that doesn't like our ideals, doesn't like what we have to say, thinks you know we, we are uh, A, B, C, D, fill in the blank, right? And how do we navigate in a godly, righteous way in a place that we are despised and we are rejected. Peter gives us many reasons as we go through the text. Verses uh, 2 through 12, and we're gonna spend the next month doing that, Peter says, this is the first way how we can overcome life's problems. And it's focusing on our glorious salvation. Verses 2 through 12, that's how Peter says, step number one, get your eyes off of the problem. Get your eyes and stop focusing on the things that are wrong and put your eyes on your salvation. Put your eyes on what God has done for you and he will get you through. And so we're going to, this morning, just kind of introduce our salvation. It's the TikTok of our salvation, if you want. It's a Vine video. It's just just an overview of what our salvation looks like. And then we're going to go in verses 3 through 12 over the next month and break it down systematically. So this morning, we're just going to briefly go over the who of our salvation. So who are the people who are saved? The when of our salvation. When did this happen? The how of our salvation. How are we actually saved? And then we're going to look at the why. Why did God call us? Why is a person saved? So we're going to look at the who, the when, the how, and then what's the last one for you note-takers? The why. We're going to look at the why. So starting at verse 1 again, we'll move to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen? And we'll stop right there. Who are chosen? And here's the who to our salvation. Who are the ones in which are saved? Well, Peter says, those who are chosen. And the Greek word is electos. Anybody want to take a gander at what our English word is? Election. Election. So what happens in an election? You choose who you want in a certain position, right? The whole point of an election is you cast your vote or you choose whom you'd like to fill a certain spot. Now, here's the question we have to ask ourselves as Bible students. Who does the choosing, right? Because this is the, the, the day-old the, the argument that goes back in Christianity. Who does the choosing? Do I choose God or does God choose me? How does this all work? Listen to what Peter says. Who are elected according to what, verse 2? According to the foreknowledge of whom? Of God the Father. So what is that saying? God is the one who chooses for a specific role. That's not a very popular thing to say these days. That, that doctrine of election is not a very very popular thing to preach. That God chooses, God elects. Let me read you a couple scriptures. 1 t- uh, Peter 2.9. So you can just uh, swipe right or you can just uh, flip your page. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen, there's our word again, electos. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter what? Verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Just as he elected, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And I'll read one more, Acts chapter 15. Now, this is the pastor's conference, and there's a guy named James. You remember that guy? We just read his book, right? So James is speaking, and this is what he says in Acts 15, 13. Acts 15, 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, also known as Simon, also known as Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Who concerned themselves about the Gentiles? It wasn't the the Gentile pagan idolaters that were worshiping all the gods and goddesses. It was God who concerned himself with them. And he says, he went and he took for himself a possession out of the Gentiles. So it's not a very popular uh, teaching, only because if I say, I choose all of you, and you guys are going to come to my barbecue, what happens to the rest of you? By by default, they're not chosen, right? And so people say, well, how can that be? God is love. That's not fair. And you hear that all the time. That's not fair. But my question is, what is fair? Because that's so subjective. And really, do you and I really want fair when it comes to God? Was it fair that for our lives, and and I'll point to each one of us, including myself, for much of our lives, we defied God, we defiled God, we blasphemed God, we lived our own life, we worshiped the God of this world, Satan, we broke God's law all the time, and before the foundation of the earth, God's affection has been on you. God's loved you even while you've denied him and defiled him over and over and over again. Is that fair? Is it fair that, that God sent his only begotten son, sinless and pure and holy, to live a life where he's despised and rejected, a man acquainted with sorrows and grief, he was beaten like a stuck pig, slammed on a cross, God's wrath poured out on him that was deserved for you? Is that fair? Is it fair that... We do nothing to earn our salvation, yet God gives us an inheritance and a blessing eternal, an eternal kingdom in which we get a rule and reign with Christ and we're co-heirs of of Christ and heirs of God. Is that fair? You see, the reality is, is if you want fair, nobody goes to heaven, period. If you want fair, no one gets to heaven. So when people say, well, God's not fair, you don't want fair. The fact that God saves one shows his incredible mercy. The fact that God calls many shows his incredible mercy. Here, I'll give you some more scripture. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 47. Acts 13, verse 47. Paul is with Barnabas, and they're out preaching the gospel uh, to Jews and Gentiles alike, and we pick it up in Acts 13, 47. In Acts 13:47, it says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here's, here's a beautiful sentence. And as many as been, had been appointed to eternal life, they believed. As many as had been appointed, they believed. John, uh, uh, Jesus says in John 15, I, you didn't choose me, I chose you. John says, we love him because he first loved us. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 9 uh, says these words, I ask on their behalf. And we have to ask, well, who's the there? I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless he is drawn. And that word drawn is like you draw a water pail. It means an inanimate object that would not come on its own. And so God has to draw a person to him because we would not naturally come on our own. Why? Because the Bible says man's heart is evil and desperately wicked. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none who do righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek after God. The soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. In my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. We were, uh, we were once dead in our sins and our trespasses. Over and over, the scripture tells us what the natural man is like. And so God then has to overcome that by his grace. So we see the who. Who are the ones that are saved? whomever God chooses. And I'm definitely in the camp with D.L. Moody when he says, if God calls the elect to salvation, I pray he calls more. And that's our attitude. That's our attitude. I don't know who's saved. I don't know whom God is calling to salvation. I don't know that. My job is to evangelize. My job is to disciple. And it's God's job to decide who's in, who's out. And so the who are the chosen. Secondly, the when who are chosen or elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That word foreknowledge means predetermination or foreordination. Is it ordination? No, not foreordination. It means predetermination or for something. I forgot. Sorry. But it means to have a predetermined relationship with someone. Now, people who don't like this doctrine that I I don't get to choose God, you mean God gets to choose me. For people that don't like that doctrine, they say this word means foresight. It simply means that God looks down the halls of eternity future, and he sees who chooses him, and based on their choice, he then calls them or elects them to salvation, which on paper seems pretty good, but when you think about it, if people are in heaven because of a work, because they went out and they chose God outside of God, then how is salvation a gift, right? By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if that's true, then salvation is based on a person and not based on God, which doesn't really jive with scripture. Number two, this word does never, is never interpreted in the New Testament as foresight, not one time. So when I was with the brethren in Nigeria, and I don't know why they asked me to help them teach and preach, but I was grateful. But when I was with the brethren out there, we got to this area in inductive Bible study where I said, key words are key words, meaning they're important. So, how do we define keywords? Well, we get the definition and then we put that definition in its rightful context. I said, context is king. It has to be in its right context. And so, how do we get the right context? And I said, think of concentric circles. And when you're looking for context and you're looking for these keywords, ask yourself, does the author use them in other places in Scripture? So when when I'm looking at this, does Peter use this word foreknowledge anywhere else? Now, the goal would be in the same chapter, because it's the same train of thought, or in the same book, because it's the same train of thought. But then you go outwardly and you say, okay, does he use it in any other of his writings? And then you go out even more and say, do any other New Testament writers use, them in their, use this in their writings? Then you go out further. What about the Old Testament? In the Septuagint, is this word used? And then you go to the furthest circle, outside of the Bible, extra biblical. How is this word used so we can get really the context and the definition? Lucky for us, uh, Peter uses this word three times, and he uses it twice in this chapter. And so we have to decide, does he mean a predetermined relationship or does he mean foresight? He looks and sees that someone is faithful and based on that, he then chooses them. So he uses this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. So it's the same author in the same train of thought. but pre- But with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, referring to whom? Christ. For Christ, for he was foreknown. There's our word. The Greek word is prognosis. For you medheads, you know what a prognosis is. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So here's the question. Did God look forward into eternity, see that Jesus would be faithful, see that he would die, see that he would be resurrected, and then based on that, people placed their faith in him? Or did he have a predetermined, pre-existing relationship with the son from before the foundation of the earth? And because of that relationship, Jesus was faithful. It's the latter, right? Genesis 1 you know, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. There was a predetermined relationship, a pre-existing relationship. One other place, Peter uses it, and it's in Acts chapter 2, and this is an important one. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over, which means sent for judgment, by the predetermined plan, and here's our word, prognosis, and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. What does that say? God from the foundation of the earth, Revelation thirteen eight. the lamb that was slain from before, before the foundations of the earth, God had a predetermined purpose to redeem mankind back. He knew they would sin, and from before creation, Jesus was sent to the cross. Now, if you can kind of grasp that in your mind, you realize that God elects and when does he elect from before the foundation of the earth? I mean, God loved you before you were born, before your parents were born, before your grandparents were born, before this nation was born, before this world was created. God says, that's my boy. That's my girl. And he's had an affection. You are God's love story, love poem. You're his workmanship, the scripture says. So the who and the when, and now we look at the how. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then we see in another clause here, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. How is a person saved? Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's through the blood of Christ. You know, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remissions of sin, the scripture says. Christ had to be our atoning sacrifice. But Jesus' blood was shed. Does that mean everybody post-cross is saved? No because it has to be appropriated, right? The the lamb and the Passover had to be placed on the door. The blood of Christ has to be placed over you. How does that happen? Well, Peter says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. See, when people say, we choose God, my question to you is this, and here's the fatal question to that argument. If you're dead, In sin and trespass, how can you choose anything? Suppose you and I go on a field trip right now and we go down to the cemetery and we, we dig up some caskets. I know it's dark, but just follow me. And we dig up some caskets and we pry the caskets open and now we have an audience full of dead people. And you and I, we just start preaching the gospel and sharing our faith and showing scripture and then we call them to repentance. What do you think our response rate is gonna be? Why? Because they're dead. Dead means absence of life. When the scripture says you are dead in your sins and your trespass, then your response rate naturally is zero. Think about that. Your response is zero. So how in the world is anybody saved? By faith, through the drawing of the Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It just means the setting apart. God calls, and then he sets you apart, and the Spirit then empowers you to be able to be saved. That famous uh, verse, Romans 8, 29, you know, for whom God foreknew, and that means a pre-existing relationship. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that Jesus would be the chief of many brethren. And whom they, he predestined, these he called. And there's our word, election he elected. And those whom he elected, he sanctified. He called them and set them apart. And whom he set apart, whom he sanctified, these he also glorified. So when God foreknew you, he glorified you. It's the golden chain, and there is no break, periods, commas, nothing. It goes foreknowledge, predestination, election, sanctification, glorification. That's how God saves, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Titus chapter what? Three. 3, verse 3 through 5. Titus 3, 3. For we once also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. Remember from last week, what is that word deceived? Anybody remember? Planeo, which means what? Planet, right? And it just means a wandering body who leaves God, who who moves away from God and goes after idols. That's that word. It means to wander away and to really break off from God. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Translation, you were dead in your sin. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, verse 5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing, and hear how it's saved, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What's the means of our salvation? The gospel. How do we get there? We're on the fast track. What freeway do we take? It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Takes a dead soul that dishonors God, hates God, hates God's law, and we just want to be the captain of our own lives gives us the power to be able to call on the name of the Lord. We are saved, sanctified, and we are glorified through his grace according to his kindness. So we looked at the who, the elect, the when, before the foundation of the world, the how, the shed blood of Christ, and the call of the Spirit, and then the why. Why? Why are you and I saved? One, to bring glory to God. and then two, Peter says it right there in verse two. Anybody want to take a, a gander at it? It's underlined. It's underlined. To obey Jesus Christ. That's why. to obey Jesus Christ. It's for obedience. It's so that your light so shines before men that they see your good works and who gets the glory? Your Father who is in heaven gets the glory. It's so that you bow the knee to the Lordship of Christ. So you say, yes, sir, yes, Lord. And you do as Jesus said so that God can give Jesus a bride, a beautiful bride, the church, adorned and gorgeous, holy and pure. And this people group, this chosen race, this priesthood, this bride of Christ will glorify him, serve him, love him forever and ever. That's the whole point. So that you would be obedient to Jesus and through that, the glory of God is manifested to all. And then we see, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And the word fullest measure, I love it. It means multiplied on top of multiplied on top of multiplied. So just take two and square it and then square four and then square 16 and just keep going down the way. It's just squared upon squared upon squared, multiplied upon multiplied, grace and peace. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense, not based on the deeds of righteousness, but upon grace. And then we have peace. And here's two forms of peace. We have one peace with God. And every Christian, everyone who's saved, has the peace with God. And all that means is God's wrath is no longer abiding on you. The the axe is no longer laid at the root. You are, as Paul writes over and over, justified. You are declared right before God. There's peace with God, and the Christian never loses that peace. Then there's the peace of God, and the peace of God is determined upon your obedience to Jesus. So you can be a Christian and not have peace, not have the peace of God, because you're willfully living in sin. And so you can have fear, you can have anxiety, you can turn to substances, you can do a whole plethora of things and still have peace with God because that hasn't changed. The blood of Christ hasn't been removed. You still have that peace. That relationship is there, but it's strained because of sin. See, when you're obedient to Jesus, you not only have the peace with God, which is eternal, but you have the peace of God. He gives you a peace of mind. And what's the fruits of the Spirit? One of them, I think, is called peace. As you walk with the Lord, as you're walking under the Spirit, as you're being obedient to your Master, He gives you love and joy and peace and patience and long-suffering and self-control and kindness, all the fruits of the Spirit. So Peter says, who are the ones whom are saved? Who are the ones, even though you're in this world, that is not your home? Who are the ones that are pilgrims and sojourners? It is the elect of God, who are chosen before the foundation of the earth, saved by the blood of Christ, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey the Lord Jesus, bring God glory, and what do you receive? God's grace, peace with God, the peace of God, and that will help you get through life's trials. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your scripture. We thank you, God, for your word. Um, Your word is so rich, Lord. Uh, We could have spent probably three, four, five, six, ten hours just today and um, just got even through verse one. And so, Father, I I just thank you, God, for uh, these students of your scripture Um, I've spoken in places where uh, you rattle off a couple Bible verses and everybody falls asleep. And yet, Lord, uh, you have equipped these people to be studious, to be alert, to hunger for your word, Lord God, and that's just a testament to your people. And so thank you for that. Thank you, God, that we can dive into your word and we can spend time in it and we can draw conclusions out of it, Lord. And I pray that in this world that is not our home, in this world that is tumultuous, as we are trying as a people and individuals to overcome obstacles and trials and pains, I pray we do it the right way. And the first way in which we can do that, according to 1 Peter 1, is to focus on our glorious salvation. God, we are not deserving of anything outside of hellfire. That's what we earned. And yet you gave us riches and eternal inheritance. We are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God, you have equipped us. You have given us things, Lord, that we cannot earn. And no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor thought that has entered into the heart of man. All the things that God will give to the one who loves him. Heaven is going to be insanely incredible, God. And we aren't deserving of it. Our blood, our sweat, our tears did not build the kingdom. But God, we are thankful that you are gracious and kind. May we be advocates and ambassadors of Christ. May we live our life in obedience to Jesus. May you and you alone get all the glory for you are deserving of all. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church of Montana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Montana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.